if you've been with us, or if you, sorry, if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, we're in a series uh, taken from the letter of the Apostle John, 1 John. We're on page 1226, if you'd like to turn to that. Uh, if, you rem- if you remember, at the beginning of this series, we said that the Apostle John was an old man by now. He's an apostle. He, uh, had, he was the man who was described as the man who loved Jesus. He'd spent uh, all the time that Jesus ministry with him. And he now writes to these Christians in and around the Ephesus area. And we found that John is very uh, concise. It's quite uh, difficult stuff that he's actually writing. And um, last week, or last time, we saw that uh, John was uh, telling them about some people's identity. So I wondered, what's our identity based upon? Who are we? There's a a great deal said about our identity in the media today, and we've got very confused people uh, out there. They're not sure who they are. They're not sure what gender they are. They're they're in complete uh, chaos. I wonder, well, who are we? What do we depend on? What does my identity depend upon? Well, John says that their identity depends upon Christ. And it's in Christ that they are called children of God. And that's our passage for tonight. Now, last time we were with us in this passage, we saw that uh, John had described the identity of the ones what he called the Antichrists, what they looked like, those that didn't believe in Jesus as the Christ, and he now turns to declare who they are. These Christians, he declares, are the righteous ones. They are the children of God. And then he goes on to talk about how they should live. And so it's John's reply against false teachers, what have been called the Gnostics, Those people who denied the reality of sin and the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. But as I said, John wants to encourage this group of people, so he calls them God's children. And you'll see the words here several times in this passage, dear children. And as God's children, he challenges them, what's this going to look like? And how will you recognize people who claim to be children of God? So my first point is this. How do they look like? What are they to be like if they are called children of God? Well, they're to continue to live in Christ. They continue to live in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 28. And they are to look forward to the return of Jesus coming to earth a second time. So what do you mean by continuing to live in Christ? Well, Christ speaks quite a lot about this when he was here teaching his disciples. He says to his disciples, you will continue in me and you will bear much fruit and you will do the works of the one who sent me. But what will be the results of continuing in Christ? Well, we see in this uh, these two verses here, that Christ will give them the freedom 
to speak. The freedom to have liberty. The freedom to have a positive account of themselves when Jesus returns again. We also see that they won't be ashamed at the second coming of Jesus to earth. They won't be shrinking back, feeling guilty before Jesus, but they will be living in love. So where does this love come from? Well, this love comes from God. So I wondered, as I thought about this, are we confident in the expectation of Jesus' return a second time here to earth? Are we confident in that? And if Christ actually appeared at this very moment, what would our reaction be? Would it be to run and meet him? Or would it be to shrink from him in shame? Well, John says that they can be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Of course, we can be clear, can't we, that the return of Jesus to this planet is absolutely certain. This certainty rests on this solemn and often repeated promise of Christ himself. Jesus said, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. So we can be more certain that Christ is going to come again than the sun will rise tomorrow morning. It's a wonderful assurance for us. But what will our reaction be? Will we have the confidence or will we be ashamed before Jesus? Well, if we live in this hope of Jesus coming again, this will help us in living in the correct way. It will give us a perspective on life that's very different to the world's perspective or our friends' perspective, colleagues and even family. Because if we live in this expectation that Jesus is going to come again, it will divide us from others. And we can see in this passage in front of us tonight that there is a link between what we hope for when Jesus returns and this matter of how we live our mortal lives. The whole question of holiness. Jesus said that it's the pure in heart that are blessed, they shall see God. And the writer of the Hebrews urges us to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So, holiness. Make every effort to be holy. So, it says in 1 John 2, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. They are to continue to live in him, and they must live and do what is right Because God is righteous. All that God thinks, feels and acts is according to what is right. He never compromises in anything he does. And of course for us and for them that he's writing to, Jesus is the model of our righteousness. He does what is righteous as his father's only begotten son. And those that do what Jesus commands have been born of him, verse 29. So that's my first point then, that these followers of Jesus, they are to live in him and they are to look forward to the return of Jesus a second time. But what is their identity actually to look like? 
Well, their identity is based upon the fact that they are called by God and they are loved by God. They are called by God and they are loved by God. And we can have that same affirmation for us as well. We are called by God and we are loved by God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that that famous preacher, said of this passage, to be a child of God means that we stand in a certain position. A child is in a certain relationship to the parents and is therefore entitled to certain privileges. We are called by God. We are loved by God. We are a child of God. We see that in verse 1 of chapter 3, don't we? That John states that God loved them so much that he calls them his children. And if you remember that passage in John's Gospel, John 3 verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And what's important for us, I think, at this point is it's not dependent on what we have done. It's not dependent on what we have done, but rather what he has done. We are his children now and not just in the future when Jesus returns. So that should encourage those Christians there and it should encourage us today as well. We know this, of course, because we then become a part of Jesus' family. Galatians 3 verse 26 says this, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, verse 14, because those led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We will be like Jesus when Christ returns the second time. So John says, we don't know yet what this will be like, but as Christ is, so will we be children of God, called by God, and not dependent upon what we do. Well, do I understand this? Do I understand my calling, my adoption, and do I value it? Do I daily remind myself of my privilege as a child of God and value God's love for me? That should be an encouraged one to each one of us tonight. So then John's point in these first few verses is to comfort the people and tell them that it doesn't matter what the world thinks. The world doesn't understand us, just as they didn't understand Jesus. So don't be bothered by that. Don't value yourselves. Don't have an identity crisis by what the world thinks, because their thinking has been compromised by Satan. They don't understand the truth. So if the world laughs at us, simply take that as a great confirmation of your faith. So that was my second point. What's identity based upon? It's based upon the call by God and being loved by God. But thirdly, how then should we live as children of God? How are we to live and how were they, as John is writing them, to live? Well, John says they should become more like Christ. Because there's a consequence of this position of being called and loved by God. John states in verse 3, we're in a process. Our Christian life is heading towards this point of becoming more like Christ. And so we read, uh, because of his love, that he loved us so much. 
And we read in Romans 8, verse 29, For those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed in the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many believers. And so we're to become more and more like Christ. But that won't be complete until Christ returns a second time and we see him face to face. So knowing this is our ultimate destiny, that we are going to meet Jesus face to face, it should motivate us to purify ourselves. To keep us morally pure means to keep ourselves on the morally straight road, which is the law of God, being free from the corruption of sin. And we know that God will purify us through the death of Jesus on the cross. But we must also strive to remain morally fit. Now, in case you think, what's he saying here? If you well, if you look in 1 Timothy 5, verse 22, uh, it says, do not share the sins of others. Also in James 4, 8 and 1 Peter 22, they all speak of this. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again. And John is writing, isn't he, in this verse 3, in strong measures, we are to be responsible to God for the way we live our lives. We are not to sin. We are not to sin. We're to look something like this, where we end up on the right-hand side. What a wonderful day when we might be recognized as children of God, who is love. But it begs the question, of course, is what is sin? We look in verse 4, According to John, it's breaking God's law. It's breaking God's law. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is not merely missing the mark or a departure from a right standard of behavior. It's in essence a rebellion against God's will and a violation of his holy law. Sin means living as if there were no God and no divine law which binds us. And so... We've got a problem. We've got a problem that we have with sin. If you look at this passage, we've got it in front of us, verses 4 to 9. I've put it up on the uh, screen for you uh, from the Application Study Bible, which I think is slightly clearer. And if you look at it, you'll see what he's saying. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God, and you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin, but anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they're children of God. 
Now, there's a problem here, isn't there? And the commentators have gone to town on this, and there are different people with different opinions. Uh, but I shall rely on John Stott, which uh, is fairly safe, I think. And uh, John Stott, maybe I'll come back to him in a, in a few minutes. But because we've got a problem, because on one hand, we know that we sin. And we do sin. We know that everyone sins. It's our experience in life. But here, John writes, Jesus' disciples, sons of God, can't go on sinning. So there's a genuine tension here within this text and within the experience of the church regarding the reality of the sin on one hand and the life of God's children on the other. But what is clear is that the author, that's John, won't allow either self-delusions of sinlessness nor a casual acceptance of sin within the lives of God's children. Perhaps those that had left the community of one John were claiming that they did not really sin, regardless of their actions, since the Gospel of John defines sin primarily as unbelief. Perhaps they appealed to their belief in Jesus as the proof that they no longer sinned or that was even a possibility for them. Now, what we've got to recognize is that for those that hope in Jesus, sin is a real possibility and a profound contradiction. That contradiction is not to be glossed over because John cannot imagine being a child of God and not reflecting the character of Jesus in one's own life. But we mustn't get confused, because all discipleship rests on the declaration of what we already are, that is, loved by God. Children now promise that we will be like Jesus when he has appeared. So how can we understand this whole issue, then, of being a child of God? Well, being a child of God means that we have been given the very nature of God. Verse 9 tells us that God's seed is in us. That's similar to saying his holy DNA is placed in us when we place our faith in him. Now, it's really important that we understand this because we must understand our identity or we'll never live the life we were meant to live. To use another illustration to try to understand this whole idea of God's DNA being within us. I don't know how many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia, for instance. But in those those books, we see the characters of Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And they have gone to Narnia. And when they went to Narnia, they found out their true identity as kings and queens of that land. But when they return to London, no one thinks of them as royalty at all. And they're just seen as normal children. They're not highly respected or treated differently. But for them, life is never the same again because they know their true identity. And so for us Christians, it's important that we know our identity. But for the Christian, sin can no longer be habitual. It becomes the exception rather than the rule. Sin can no longer be the ruling principle. The Christian resists sin, and when he does sin, he confesses it, as we do in our normal services, and perseveres in self-purification. And so, John Stott says this. John Stott says, 
the following. To see and know Christ, the sinless saviours of sinners, is to outlaw sin. To sin is to deny Christ and to reveal that one is not abiding in him. He also says this, sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet, but they cannot live together in harmony. John's point, of course, is this, that as children of the Heavenly Father, as ambassadors for Christ, our lives should look dramatically different, and the focus of our lives should be on such a higher plane that the things of this world aren't even tempting. John Stott says this. John says that uh, the work of the evil one is threefold. The work of the devil is morally, his work is an enticement to sin morally, physically the infliction of disease, intellectually the seduction into error. And this was what was happening within these churches that John was writing to. The seduction of false teachers and heresy. Well, that still happens today. It happens to our minds, body, and spirit. And we are to be warned of what is happening. And we are to be warned and encouraged to pursue holiness. Now, of course, we all have areas in which temptation is found. Sin is is strong and habits are hard to conquer. These weaknesses, of course, allow the devil to get a foothold into our lives, a place to enter. So we need to ask God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can identify these and deal with our areas of vulnerability. If we're struggling with a particular sin, these verses are not directed at us even if we seem to keep on sinning. John is not writing about people whose victories are still incomplete, but he's talking about people who make a practice of sinning and look for ways to justify it. Look at verse 9 again. Those that have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. They have God's spirit within them, the Holy Spirit who is perfect without sin. What John is saying is that these children of God won't be indifferent to God's moral law, but they will be working to gain victory over it. But the responsibility is for each Christian to pursue this. So can I suggest for you then three things that we can do to help us to have victory over prevailing sin? Three ways of actually trying to fight against sinful habits. The first is this. Seek the power of the Holy Spirit and God's word. Seek the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we submit our lives each day by inviting the Holy Spirit into our hearts and our minds and daily go into God's word through meditation and reading and maybe even listening to it, that can help us to fight against sinful habits. Secondly, and a very practical thing, once you've identified the area of temptation, well then stay away from it. Of course it depends on what it is, what our weakness and vulnerability is, but if it's lust of the flesh, then avoid those places which present those. That may be through TV, films, the internet, the company we keep, the places we go. But we need to take actual actions to do so and then the Holy Spirit can help us with this but it relies upon ourselves 
taking that initial step to identify what is tempting us to fall into lawlessness. And then thirdly, as a church, as a body together, we can seek the help and support of other Christians within our body of Christ here. Now, of course, this is very difficult in a congregational setting. So this raises the whole question of being a member of small groups or prayer triplets or having a spiritual mentor. But it means that we have to be open again, to be honest and willing to be accountable and to accept their prayers for overcoming this temptation. Verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. We are born into God's family where the Holy Spirit lives in us and gives us new life. It's a rebirth, receiving a new family name based upon Jesus' death for us. And when this happens, God forgives us, totally accepts us, and the Holy Spirit gives us a new mind and heart to live within us and to help us to become more like Christ. Which means, of course, our perspectives change because our minds are being renewed day by day. So as a result of this, John writes in verse 10 that we, when this happens to us, we can then see who are the children of God, those that love their brothers and sisters within the family of God. Beloved, we are now children of God. We know that when life is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3. Verse 2. So, that's the last slide. It's a fantastic, difficult passage, isn't it? But keep calm, because we are children of God. God has given us the Holy Spirit to empower us, to help us to overcome sin, though the devil works jolly hard at trying to bring us down. Amen. Amen.